Well, amen. Thank you, Daniel and team, and for the prayer, Miss Felita. <clears throat> if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the 17th chapter of the book of Acts. This morning we will uh, start it, and so I'm excited about I had a few announcements uh, as you are uh, flipping there. Uh, as uh, Miss Felita mentioned in her prayer, we do have uh, Luke is at West Laurel Baptist Church. If you saw him come in and he had his suit on, uh, that's, he's, he's going to preach over there. Uh, and Paul, our youth pastor, is at Willow Grove uh, Baptist Church preaching this morning. And so uh, pretty cool this morning. We have two from our, our midst that are going out and serving other churches uh, this morning through the teaching of the Word. And so let's be uh, lifting them up. A few other announcements. Uh, uh, back at our last family meeting, we mentioned... Uh, getting our uh, administrative minister team started, uh, and so we have got those filled out. And so, uh, in the back of the, at the giving tables, there are lists there of those four teams and uh, potential uh, people who will fill those teams. Uh, and so, we will uh, vote to affirm those on our next family meeting, which will be uh, November the twelfth. Uh, which is the night of our Fall Fest, Family Night slash Fall Fest. And so on the 12th, we will meet in here at 5 p.m. Uh, for our family meeting. Uh, well, we will walk to, here from Next Point. We'll, hear, uh, we'll walk through the, the administrative ministry teams and affirm those. And then following that at 6, around 6, we will have our Fall Fest where we kind of like we did last year, small groups are setting up booths and we'll have corn dogs here. Uh, and so if, obviously so you'll be able to get a fair corn dog this week. And then November 12th, the fair corn dog will be back here at Cross Point. And so all the corn dogs, right? Uh, but anyway, so uh, that's what's going on there. So you can grab, like I said, grab those uh, lists uh, as you walk out. And then for the next couple of weeks, if you have any questions or want to talk through those, that's the time to do that. Because uh, on family meeting, we'll, we'll just we'll vote to affirm those on that night. And so you've got a couple of weeks to, to talk to me or Luke or one of the other pastors about those teams. Uh, and so... Anyway, Acts chapter 17 uh, is uh, where we'll be this morning. Before we, before we do that, um, uh, many of you may know, many of you may not know one of our members, Ms. Dana Russell, uh, which is Josh Russell and Courtney Edwards, and they have a sister named Bailey's mother, uh, went in last week and they found a mass at the head of her pancreas, and they believe it to be cancer. They haven't had the biopsy reports back yet. Uh, she is currently at UMC in Jackson. Uh, hopefully to come home today, Josh, is that what you said? Hopefully to come home today, and then she'll begin to meet with an oncologist this week to kind of see what the path forward looks like. So anyway, uh, we told Ms. Dana that we would pray for her as a church, and so I want to start by praying for Ms. Dana and the family. So just for a moment, I'll give you a brief moment. You go uh, to the Lord on behalf of Ms. Dana and Courtney and Will and Bailey, uh, and then I'll pray over us as well. So you pray for a moment, and then I'll pray. Father, we come to you uh, on behalf of Ms. Dana uh, this morning. God, I know that it's been a whirlwind of a few days, but God, we know that even in our chaos, God, you are steady and you're sovereign. Uh, you do not fret at bad news uh, or uncertain times. So, so God, we thank you that you are uh, our anchor. God, we thank you that you're Ms. Dana's anchor. 
that she knows you. And so, God, I pray now that even as she's preparing to come home, God, that your Holy Spirit will minister peace to her heart. Uh, God, that she, uh, as we have prayed together a couple times this week, God, that she'll be able to uh, look back and remember how you have brought her through uh, cancer before. And, God, that you'll be faithful to carry her this time as well. So, God, I pray for her. God, I pray for her body. God, I pray that uh, we're able to find answers, and, God, that you will heal her body. God, I pray for Courtney and Josh and Bailey. God, as they love on their mother and take care of their mother, God, that you'd give them strength, that you, your spirit would encourage their hearts and their minds and their spirits. And so, God, just thank you for the fitness family, and I got to thank you that they're a part of CP. I just pray that we are a blessing to them as they've been a blessing to us. God, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Acts chapter 17. And so when we ended last week, uh, the, we see that the church in Philippi had begun and they had been meeting in Lydia's house. Uh, and when we pick up chapter 17, they are leaving Philippi. And so uh, actually, let's just read verse 1 of 17. It says, now when they had passed through uh, uh, and Phil, Amphipo, I can't even say it, <laughs> Amphipolis and Apollonia that came to Thessalonica. And so if you'll br- uh, bring the map up, uh, I don't have Luke's laser pointer because I don't want to burn a hole in the screen. Uh, uh, but anyway, so they were, they were in Philippi, uh, top left, you see Macedonia, you see Philippi there. So that's where they had been the past week or so. Uh, and then they travel uh, 30-ish miles uh, to uh, Amphipolis there. And then another 34 to Apollonia, and then about 40 miles, and they get to Thessalonica. And so about 100 miles, uh, it looks like the way the text reads, it looks like they made it in a three-day stretch. And so they must have been running real fast, or they're missing some horses or camels or something going on uh, to make it. So 100 miles, they made the trek over to Thessalonica. But anyway, uh, so you see that's where they are. And the rest of 17, uh, chapter 17, they'll go to Berea go down to Athens, and then we'll see them uh, in Ephesus as well. And so, anyway, uh, that's where we'll be. We're now in Thessalonica. And so, anyway, Thessalonica, like I said, is about 100 miles from Philippi. Uh, and so it was the capital of Macedonia. Philippi was uh, an important town, but uh, Thessalonica was, was one, of the, one of the greatest uh, cities there. There's about 200,000 people. There's a major port and commercial center. So this is now, like I said, they're at the capital of Macedonia. Uh, this is the letters, First and Second Thessalonians, this is which in which that church has been, will be planted. And one of the things that I've loved, Luke and I were talking about this week is, you know, I've studied, in this confession to you, I've studied the letters, I've read the letters, but I don't know if I've ever done it in contrast as a walking through the book of Acts. And so it's really cool to be able to, to look at Acts 17 and see the first, inter, first interactions with Thessalonians, but then read First Thessalonians and Paul talks about how much he loved to them and how he, how he came to them and how he preached the word and how they received the word. Then you see it in Acts 17 actually playing out in real time. So it's just real cool, uh, the beauty, beauty of God's word and how it fits together and how God has put it together for uh, our benefit and our own edification. But anyway, let's pick up uh, in, in verse 2. Uh, well, they get there and there's a synagogue of the Jews. And in verse 2, it says, And Paul went in, as was his custom, on, uh, and on three Sabbath days, so three weeks, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and improving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. 
And some of them who persuaded, uh, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did many great, uh, as did great a great many of the devout Greeks and not uh, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, uh, they formed a mob, set set the city into an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking uh, to bring them out uh, to the crowd. And when they had, uh, when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, "Here it is, ready! These men who have turned the world upside down." Pause for a moment. They've only been to one town uh, so far. But anyway, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they all. Uh, they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. This is God's word. May he bless it uh, as we look to it now. So in the text, you see now they've made it to Thessalonica. So what you see in the book of Acts over and over again is that Paul and Silas will go to a place. And most of the time they'll go to a synagogue. Right. If in Philippi, there wasn't a synagogue. So they went to the, to, to the river. But the majority of the time we see in the text is as was his custom that they'll go to a synagogue. They'll preach Jesus. People will get saved. Other people won't. They'll cause a conflict. That's the cycle you'll see over and over through the book of Acts. And so uh, it's, 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 we see that, that repetition, if you will. And so the same thing happens to Thessalonica. We see, first of all, uh, that, that Christ Jesus is proclaimed in Thessalonica. That the, the sole intent of Paul and Silas going and the rest of the guys going to uh, Thessalonica was to preach Christ Jesus. So I think the text really breaks down in three points. And it's, it's first of all, Christ Jesus is proclaimed. Secondly, converts are made. Thirdly, crisis arises. And so that's what we'll see through the text. If you're taking notes, number one, we see that when they get to Thessalonica, that Christ Jesus is proclaimed. And I say Christ Jesus instead of just Jesus, because uh, what this text reminds us of, uh, first of all, that we just associate Christ Jesus like, or Jesus Christ, like Christ is Jesus's last name. Uh, but it's not there. It's, it's a title. It's an office. It's something in which the, the, the Jews longed for. And so what what Paul does, and I'll get ahead of myself for a moment, is that he goes in and presents to Christ that the Jews have been longing for and connects it to the person of Jesus, right? And so the, 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 the Jews didn't necessarily have a hard time thinking that Christ was going to come. They had a hard time connecting with the person of Jesus. And so that's what Paul is doing when he goes into the synagogue. So first of all, we see there that he went to the synagogue and for three Sabbath days he reasoned. So not just one Saturday, but three weeks in a row, Paul came to the same place and he, he proclaimed Christ Jesus in really three different ways we see in the text. We see that there's a, there's a reasoning, there's, a, there's an explaining and a proving, and I'll break those down a little bit as we go. Here's something that I found interesting. If you were to read, I don't want you to flip there, but uh, I didn't catch it until this week whenever I was studying through, but in, in Philippians chapter 4, uh, verse 15, this don't come on the screen, it says this. It says, and you Philippians, so Paul's writing to the church of Philippi, which is what? Acts 16, right? The church we just saw. And so when he's writing them a letter, this is how one of the things he says in his letter in verse 15. It says, you Philippians yourselves 
know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs and once and again. And so there's a great chance that this church we just met in 16 is already supporting Thessalonica efforts in chapter 17. And so we don't know if it's chapter 17, but we do know that Paul comes back to Thessalonica in Acts 20. So we don't know which one of those. I believe in those three weeks that he was there in Thessalonica that I, I have to believe that maybe the, the Philippian church was sending him monetary gifts to be able to support his ministry. Isn't that crazy how radical that is? That a church has just planted one chapter prior and now is already supporting missions in other places. And so, beautiful picture there. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. But he's, in, he's, he's there three weeks, and, he, and ultimately what he's doing is he is proclaiming Christ Jesus. First of all, it, Luke says that he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Look at it again in verse 2. It says, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So, for three weeks straight, and so everything I'm talking about, he does this. I don't know if he does one on one day or he does all three every time he goes. But first of all, he reasons with them from the scriptures. This, this Greek word reason is where we get our word dialogue, which means this is not a formal sermon. Uh, part of this is that ultimately that, that Paul stood up in the synagogue and it almost had a Q&A. That he was standing in the synagogue for three weeks or maybe one week, but ultimately he was taking the scriptures and the Jews would ask questions and he was reasoning with them from the scriptures. You follow me? So oftentimes we just have this picture of Paul just coming in and, and dropping the hammer. But what we see is there this, this humility and a genuine love for his fellow Jews that he would sit there and he would reason with them. When they would ask a question, ultimately he says he would go to the scripture and reason, dialogue, converse. He would answer questions that they had about the scripture. That's a beautiful picture of, of, of oftentimes we had this idea that in order for us to share the gospel, it's just I'm coming at you, hook, like I'm coming at you with a wooden bat and I'm going to blitz you. But what we see here is that oftentimes in evangelism and sharing the gospel, there's a reasoning that happens. There's a dialogue that happens. There's, a, there's an essence when, when someone has questions about scripture that we as believers can go, yeah, this is what scripture says about that. This is why I believe, because Scripture says this. And so we see that, that, that ultimately Paul, for three weeks, he, he reasoned with them. He heard their questions. He heard their doubts. He heard their disagreements. He heard, and for week by week by week, he would reason with them. Not Listen to me. Not in his own intellect. Not in his own, even his power and authority as being an apostle. He reasoned with them through the word of God. I want you to catch this. You ready? My intellect and your intellect cannot change the heart of a lost person. Only the word of God can. It doesn't matter what I know or what I believe and if I can defend it or if I can say it or if I can say it perfectly because we all know I cannot do that. Uh, it, it does, that does not matter. The only thing that can change a heart is the word of God. And sometimes people don't need us just yelling at them. They need us to reason with them. And listen to which means me and you as child of God who have access to the scripture, we better be able to answer questions by using the word. Amen. We better be able to give an account, not just of this, because listen to me, our faith isn't illogical. It isn't 
<laughs> it isn't unreasonable. There's a reason why we have faith in this God, because ultimately we have viewed the world, and the reasonable thing for us to do is not to live life on all. The reasonable thing to do is to submit to the God who sustains and rules everything. And so therefore, Peter tells the church when he's writing to the dispersion, be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. And this reason, this hope, isn't just because God makes me feel good, but that I understand that I understand the character of God. I know the character of God, how he's revealed himself to be. And that's not just experiential. That is us studying scriptures to know how God has revealed himself. Therefore, we can reason with people. Justin, I, I don't have an apologetic degree. Neither do I. But I have the word of God in my hand. I have the spirit of God in my heart. And that's enough for me and you to be able to reason with people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures. Secondly, he explained the scriptures to them. It says here that, so this is a sense in which where one gives a picture of a Q&A, the other has a, a picture of uh, ultimately the, the word explained there is to, to make open or to open up. As in things, what he did was is things that we walk through the scripture that they would know obviously would be the Old Testament. They wouldn't have the New Testament. Literally the picture is, is that he opened it up so that they could understand it. He explained it to them. It's what we try to do on Sunday mornings the best that we can is just not give you what I think, but just open up the word and try to explain it. Sometimes we fail. We miss the mark tremendously. Sometimes, anyway, we just open the book and try to explain. That's what we see Paul doing for three weeks. Not only is he Q&A, if you will, not only is he, not only is he reasoning with them, but he's, he's, he's opened it up to clearly and simplistically that this is what the Scripture is he's explaining the scripture. Thirdly, he's proving to them by the scripture. Right? So one, there like there's there's three levels. One is like he's QA and he's listening. One is very neutral that he's just explaining. And this word here proving is almost like he switches to not argumentative, but in a sense, like he is, he's now, because uh, oftentimes, definitely with Jews, like with, we were talking about this in staff meeting last week, like with Greeks and Gentiles, like, right, you don't, he didn't have to necessarily interact with them on an intellectual basis. They just said that, he said, hey, you were once stranger and aliens, now God is going to bring you into the family. That's the best news I've ever heard. Right. Uh, but with the Gentile, oftentimes there had to be a, uh, for a Jew, there had to be a persuading, it had to be an intellectual conversation. There had to be going, here's what the scripture says, which he's done. Q&A it. Let's explain it. And then he says, and I'm about to prove to you that all of that scripture points to this one person. So he is now persuading. It's to give evidence to set before. And so for three weeks, he's going to the synagogue and he is he's reasoning, he's explaining and he's proving. But what is he proving? Look at verse three, explaining, proving that. Listen to me, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. He spent three weeks going into this Jewish synagogue that were made up of Jews, obviously, and then obviously some, some converts from, uh, some Greek converts to Judaism, God-fears that we've seen. And for three weeks, he went in, he reasoned, he explained, he, he persuaded that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to die. So Justin, why is that important? Again, 
We are so far removed from New Testament, we automatically, when we say Jesus, your mind goes Christ. Right? Like it's, it's connected, like it's his last name. But for the Jew, it wasn't that way. It was, there's the Christ that's promised from the Old Testament, and there's this lunatic named Jesus that we've heard about. Everybody with me? The, the, the guy who tried to overturn everything. The guy who came in and made us, you know, frustrate us to the point that we said, we, this dude's got to. And so he's, he spends three weeks getting their attention to the Old Testament Christ. You with me? Spent three weeks getting their mind under the necessity, because they had a hard time believing this Messiah, this Christ, would come in and he would die. They wanted a Rome, like a military leader. They wanted someone who's going to come in and power and just overturn the system. And they wanted the, the second coming of Jesus to be the first coming of Jesus. They wanted the, 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 the Messiah that comes in and just flips the script and, and, and restores uh, Israel to the rule and power and authority. That's what they were looking for. So the idea that this Messiah or this Christ would have to die and to raise again was a far-fetched thing for them. So he spends three weeks reasoning, explaining, and persuading that this Christ must suffer and die, but also raise again. And we don't have it filled out of what, how he would give the necessity of that, but we can look to other sermons and look through the book of Acts. That there are probably some components of that, that sermon. And so this is for them, but also for us. Some of you may ask the question, why did Jesus have to die? Why did the Christ? I mean, he's God, right? Like, God's omnipotent, which means he's all-powerful, right? He can do anything he wants to. Why did the Son of God have to die? What is the necessity? What necessitated the fact that the Christ had to die? Well, I think Paul may have mentioned that the Christ had to, had to die and to raise again, first of all, to fulfill Scripture. Like they would have the Old Testament, which is full of prophecies that the Messiah that would come would suffer at the hands of evil men. And you think about Psalm 22, and you think about Isaiah 53. These are, things, these are the works or words that they would have been able to read. And so obviously the Christ had to come. It was necessary for him to die and to rise again to fulfill Scripture. Psalm 16 talks about the, the, the resurrection of the Savior, right? So there are these, I, I would say that probably he would spend time going, man, look at, look, look at, look at the Old Testament. It's kind of like Jesus did on the, on the road to Emmaus with the, with the disciples. He said, listen to me. It was me that the prophets were prophesying about. It was me that, that everything's been working towards. Everything that you, our people have believed in and, and you've read, it's all been about me. And he opened their eyes to see that I, I would tend to believe that Paul spent time goes to me. Isaiah 53, Isaiah was talking about the Christ. Psalm 22, it's about the Christ. But not only would, did the Christ have to suffer and raised from the dead to fulfill Scripture, but fulfilled a sacrificial system. Right? Their, their, their salvation wasn't, wasn't an eternal one, if you will. It was one that was a year-by-year basis that an animal would be sacrificed. Right? And it started with the Passover all the way back into the, the, the Egyptian captivity whenever, whenever the Israelites had been in bondage for hundreds of years and finally God was going to let His people go. He's going to deliver His people. 
And the sign that he gave the Pharaoh and to the Israelites before that was, was, was the Passover. And there was an idea of, the, the, of a lamb that was going to, to, to atone for the, for the sins of people. And then year by year, what would happen is that they would celebrate the Passover where, where God passes over the sin. And year by year, the blood of an innocent animal would be would be would be poured out on the ground and God would forgive their sins and and then and then the next year we had a bunch of sins again and so we had to do the same thing over and over again and it was it was something that the sacrificial system is something that God instituted but it wasn't the end all be all it was to point to something it was to point that one day there was going to be a guy named John the Baptist who was baptizing people and he would look up from the river and see Jesus walk and he said behold it's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world it points to one that this Christ had to suffer and die because God's been giving them a picture for years that there was going to be an animal, a lamb, a substitute whose blood was going to be shed. Innocent blood was going to be shed, and it pointed to the Christ. The Christ must suffer and raise from the dead to, to purchase salvation. That the idea that for, for years, and obviously they were doing what God said, but salvation wasn't, wasn't complete, if you will. That I still had to atone for my sins. But the Christ would come, and he would die, and he would rise again to purchase salvation freely and forever. He would, the Christ would come, this Christ of the Old Testament would come. He would suffer and raise from the dead to defeat sin and to defeat death. And I can imagine them trying to take our minds to this Thessalonian synagogue and they're going, all right, all right, now we're seeing it, we're seeing it. And then he says this, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you, he's the Christ. Right? Could you imagine? Like we're we're so far removed. Just imagine them, like them them leaning in, them leaning in, going, "All right, that, that was necessary." And then he goes, "This Jesus, kind of like Peter said, this Jesus whom you crucified, that God raised from death, he's he's the Christ. He's the one. He's the one that the that the sacrificial system that it pointed to." He's the one that, that everything you see, how God has interacted and the covenants are all pointed to this one. The, 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 the law, the scripture, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Psalm 16 is culminated in the person of Jesus. It is him. All of, all the scripture points to him. All the scripture points to his purchase, his cross, his empty grave, his throne. Jesus is the Christ. And I don't know if he did that day one or day three. I don't know if it was like two, two weeks of, of setting up, and then finally on day three he said, oh yeah, by the way, the Jesus you hate, he's the Christ. The Jesus whom you think was an idiot, he's, the, he's, he's alive, by the way. He's the Lord. He's the Christ. And one of the most beautiful things that if you and I can 
always remember that this, this book that, that Paul spent three weeks reasoning and explaining and persuading or defending, declaring, it is one story. And it's about the Christ who comes to die in the place of sinners for the glory of God. for the building of the church and the rule and reign of the sovereign king. And I was reminded this week, and some of you have seen this, some of you haven't, but here's how, here's how I know that. In Genesis chapter 3, anybody tell me what happens in Genesis chapter 3? Sin enters the world. Everything's been good. Sin enters the world. And if you're not familiar with maybe, maybe you, this, you don't know anything about church, God created Adam and Eve, put them in a garden. We all come from Adam and Eve. Put them in a garden and said, hey, you can have free reign in here, except you cannot eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We know about that tree, right? Story goes on, they were disobedient to God, they ate from that tree. And immediately they sinned against God. There was a broken seal. But also scripture teaches in Genesis 3 that there was another tree in that garden. It was called the tree of life. And the tree of life, evidently, if you were to eat of that tree, it seals your current condition for all of eternity. Right? And we see that God takes actions and steps after Adam and Eve had sinned. This is what we read in verse 22 of chapter 3. It says, When the Lord God said... Behold, the man has come, become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and live forever. So he says, all right, he has sinned, but there's a tree of life in there. And so unless man is able to take from the tree of life and live in that condition forever, this is what God does. He says, therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden. So now we're all born east of Eden. We're all born out of Eden because God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. And it seems like, man, what a... What a, what a mean guy, but follow me here. He kicked them out because he didn't want them to eat from the tree of life in their sinful condition. Everybody with me? So he kicked them out. He drove them out. He drove out the man to the east of the garden of Eden. He placed a cherub and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life. That's the very beginning of this thing we call the Bible. Man sins. It seems like God is judging him. He kicks him out of the garden. He, he, he shuts the gates. He, he guards the gates. And from Genesis all the way through the rest of the Bible, it's the story of man living east of Eden and God intervening to give pictures of grace and direction in his plan. And you know how this Bible ends? Go to Revelation chapter 20. That's the... Yeah, that's... Yeah. Mm -hmm. Pages are sticking together. I'm sorry. Revelation chapter 20, verse 14. Remember, God kicked them out. Didn't want them to be stuck in that. Look at chapter, verse 14 to chapter, sorry, 20, 22. Not chapter 20, Revelation 22. Verse 14 says, Blessed are those who wash their robes, so listen to me, they may have the right to the tree of life, and then they may enter the city by the gates. 
The story is about the Christ who would come and suffer and die and raise again. And his name is Jesus. And by Jesus, we now have access back into the garden, if you will. We, we can move from east of Eden to back, actually back to the tree of life through the gates. It's the story of Scripture. From cover to cover. We're out, we're in. What's in the middle? The work of the Son of God. So what's the application to just these couple of verses? First of all, we follow Paul's example when he preached. And we preach, when we share the word, when we share the gospel, it is Christ-centered. Listen to me, a lot of times our, our evangelism approach, obviously Paul went somewhere that he would find common ground. Like, I get common ground. Everybody with me? And in, in the mission world, it would be the, a person of peace. We go find somebody who's not resentful, who will have a conversation with us, who gives us doors to somewhere else, right? But oftentimes, definitely in our world, our gospel presentation has less to do with being Christocentric and more about my feeling-centric or what I'm lacking-centric, me-centric, them-centric. What we see about Paul is he was Christ-centric. It's about his work and what he's done. When we preach, when we share the gospel with people, we have to talk about Jesus more than we talk about anything else. Secondly, we preach boldly. The dude just got out of jail at Philippi for doing the same thing that he's doing now. And he comes in, he's got history. Anytime he brings up Jesus in his synagogues, he's about to get run out of town. But what does he do? For three weeks, he builds it up and says, it's Jesus. Bold. I wrote the word intelligently here. And I don't mean by like scholarly in a sense that you got to have a degree and you got to know everything. What I'm saying is what I think he did is he helped people think about the Bible. He reasoned with them. He went to the Old Testament and said, here's Let's think about the Bible for a moment. He made them think about what it means, what it implies, and how it all points to Jesus. And so when I say whenever we're, we're evangelizing, when we're sharing the gospel, we do it in a way that's obviously bold, but we also do it in a way that we have an understanding of, of what we believe and why we believe it. Like, I know we pray. Like, I understand we pray for God to, to work and to do, but don't use prayer. I'm just going to pray and God's going to take care of it as an excuse to be lazy and apathetic towards the Word of God. And he, did, he preached humbly. For, for three weeks, he sat there and took their questions. And I can imagine some of those questions are probably people who had been like, could you imagine, like, one of the things that happens uh, as a pastor and anywhere, if you're, you know, wherever you work, is that sometimes people come with you to you with something that they've been thinking, like, for three weeks, and when they say it's the first time you thought about it, Right, so they have like three weeks of ammunition ready to store it up, and their, their you know, their quiver's full, right? Uh, and so, could, could you imagine? It's, uh, like, they come the first week, and uh, they begin to present, and then somebody probably goes, 
I'm coming next week and I'm going to have some questions for them. Right, so they come in and probably throwing some questions at them and things at them, but they they humbly sit there and they try their best to explain and reason with them the word of God. It's a beautiful picture, humble. And actually, look at this one come up on the screen, but in First Thessalonians chapter two, Paul talks about his time with them. First Thessalonians chapter two, verse one, it says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, Paul's wrong. Doesn't isn't it awesome that you can read that and go, oh yeah, we we, we talked about that last week. Like I understand what Paul's talking about, how he was mistreated. It's, it's beautiful, right? And so we read that and go, yeah, I'm familiar with that. They they were just hanging out by the river, and a girl named Lydia, a lady named Lydia, got saved, and they cast a demon out of a grid, and they were thrown in jail, and 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 so we know how they were treated in Philippi just by studying. Anyway. How we treated Philippi, as you know, we had bold we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error and or impurity or any attempt to deceive, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with pretext for, for greed, God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, rather from you and from others, though we have made, uh, we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. You see his humility in sharing the gospel with Thessalonians. As a mother takes care of her infant. And so, Christ Jesus is proclaimed. That's point number one. Point number two is that converts are made. Look at verse four. Like this, this is the goal. This is why we're going, not for Christ, not only for Christ to be exalted, but for people to come to know him and believe in him and trust in him. Verse four, it says. And some of them were persuaded. And so persuaded obviously goes to uh, the Jew here. There was a persuasion, like they, like God opened their eyes to see Jesus as the Christ that had come. They were persuaded. Uh, but then it also says, uh, and they joined Paul and Silas, and as did a great many devout Greeks. There's the Gentile there that's been trying to, like, trying to become a Jew. And all of a sudden they hear, wait, this whole Judaism is pointed to Jesus? Count me in. I'm following him. That's good news. And then Luke always, in, in through the book of Acts, always notes that when women come to faith, he says here, and it's in many of the leading women. And so the gospel, Christ is proclaimed. And people trust in Jesus. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that the prayer that we... Christ is proclaimed in scripturally correct, Christocentric gospel that Christ is proclaimed. And some who were losing the intellectual battle said, you know what? Jesus is the Christ. Some who were cut off from hope and promises, living in despair, said, oh, Jesus is the Christ. And some who maybe didn't even have a voice or a name in society says, Jesus loves me and died for me, and he is the Christ. God worked through the preaching of the word. We trust in the power of the gospel. We just proclaim it. 
And in Thessalonians, again, it's going to come up on the screen, the first part will. Paul gives record of not only his coming, but the Thessalonians and how they received. Look at the beginning of verse 2 of Thessalonians chapter 1. We give thanks to God always uh, for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and our Father, uh, and God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in the word, but also in the power of the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And if not only... Uh, uh, not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but uh, your faith in God has gone from forth everywhere so that we need not to say anything. Man, what a beautiful thing that these people came to know Jesus and radically changed their life. Matter of fact, it says this, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Remember, that was what he talked about in the synagogue. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. They, get, they came to know Jesus. And the, the, the word that Paul uses when he writes a letter that you turn from idols to a living God gives us an understanding that the majority of the believers of Thessalonians were Gentile. And he said, but listen, you came to faith in Jesus and it is sounding forth throughout all Macedonia and even further by your love for Jesus and your love for the saints. It also says this, and if you have your Bible, you go to verse 13 of the First Thessalonians uh, chapter 2. It says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God, which is at work in you believers. That's the three weeks in the synagogue. They, they received the word as not just word from Paul, but it's the very word of God. I wrote it like this. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all people. So Christ Jesus is proclaimed. Converts are made, but guess what? There's a crisis that arises. Look at verse 5. But the Jews were jealous. Jealousy never leads to good places, right? Even in our own life, we definitely see it in Scripture, but they were jealous of Jesus, they were jealous of Peter and John, now they're jealous of Paul, and it never leads to good places. Herod was jealous, now they're jealous, and it says this, that they went, and it's crazy that they accused them of causing an uproar, turning the world upside down, but we actually see that's exactly what they do. They go, uh, and they entice a mob, and they set the city up in uproar. They attacked the house of Jason. Evidently, they knew that, that the, the apostles and missionaries were staying at Jason's house. That's all we know about Jason. But for some reason, all week long, and this has nothing to do with Jason's that I know, uh, but in my mind, I have like, when I try to think through Paul, I have like, you know, a certain skin tone. And that, like when I'm trying to imagine, then when I, when I read Jason, I just kept thinking about a blonde-haired, blue-eyed guy in the Middle East. It's just real weird always like, why do they name him Jason? Anyway, that's just literally all week long. It's like, so weird. Anyway, they knew 
they knew that they were staying to Jason, so they went, and they weren't there. They couldn't find them, so it says that they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting. And here's first accusation. Accusation number one. These men have turned the world upside down, and now they're here. What an accusation. <laughs> As in, man, what a compliment. <laughs> like, Man, <laughs> don't we wish that Laurel could say that about Crosspoint? Like, here's the church that's turned us, turned it upside down. They've literally only been in Philippi in Macedonia, but the whole world is being affected. And you know, when I thought that, I, I literally, I wasn't going to do this till this morning, but didn't Jesus have a tendency to turn things on their heads? And I'm saying that in context of how peacefully is not the right word, but how at home we live our Christian life. And how everywhere Jesus went, he turned things on their heads. I mean, think about it. Like, Jesus had the tendency to, to turn the way people thought and power structures on their head. He, he, he talked about how in order to go up, you must first go down. Like there's a, there's a humility, not power. He talked more about what, what was going on on the inside of a heart versus having whitewashed tombs. He talked about not being served, but to serve. Everywhere Jesus went, he turned the status quo up on its head. Whatever the cultural climate was in the Middle East, whenever he was walking there, religious, socioeconomic, political, when he walked in, he turned it up on his head. Yet somehow, Christ followers can just navigate through the world without causing any stink or riffle. And I was convicted by that this week. That not that we go out and we try to live life that we're causing chaos, but if ultimately, if we're, if we're following Jesus... And we try to live the way in which he calls us to, then it's not going to be accepted by the, the world in which we live. Not that we seek out to cause chaos, but it's just going to come. Jesus was obviously a man of peace. <laughs> but who he was turned things on his head. One commentator said that, and I like this. It says that they were being accused of turning the world upside down. Where one commentator said maybe actually God was working through them to turn the world right side up. Because everything about the world is upside down the way that God designed it. And his purpose and his reason. And So maybe through the gospel and Jesus is actually turning the world right side up the way it's supposed to be of us, the created, bowing to the creator, not telling the creator he owes or he bows down to me. The second accusation is that they are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And we don't know if they were saying this or not, but this was something that, listen to me, Back in that day, if you stayed anybody's king other than Caesar, it cost you your life. 
And we don't see them backing down, but they were accused of saying that there's another king, and the king wasn't Caesar. His name was Jesus. There's great consequences to this statement. But listen to me. The reason, the, the reason why the message of Jesus being king turns the world upside down is because it, it throws us off the throne. And that's ultimately what the gospel being preached is. Oftentimes we preach the gospel on a felt needs basis, as in you feel lonely, well, Jesus will accept you. We preach the gospel in a sense that, oh, you, you've been abandoned, well, Jesus won't abandon you. And that's byproducts of the gospel. The gospel says that Jesus is Lord of all. That because of what he's done on the cross into graves, that now God the Father has given him a name that's above every name. And at that name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. The gospel doesn't necessarily start with me and you. It starts with the glory of God. And in his goodness and in his character, said, you know what? I'm going to create man in my image. And it doesn't take long, which we've already got, that man totally dropped the ball there. But God in his glory and his goodness and kicking <laughs> And kicking Adam and Eve out of the garden was the most merciful thing he could do. It was almost like he's saying, hey, I've got a plan that's been planned before the foundation of the world. But the first thing I do is I've got to get you away from this tree. Because one day, my son's going to come. And he's going to die. He's going to shed his blood to forgive this sin. And he's going to be raised. And he's going to sit upon his throne as a conquering king. And the message of the gospel that we see throughout Scripture is not necessarily just come to Jesus so that you can find value. It's come and submit your life to the king of the universe. Because he's worthy of it and he deserves it. So the call, obviously an implication of that, is this king isn't one who's just that not, not only does he, does he rule with a mighty scepter, but he also does it with an outstretched arm that saves. That he's both truth and he's grace. And so we need to be reminded that when we sign up to follow Jesus, we don't do it just to go to heaven and not hell. We do it because we're submitting our life to the king of the universe, which means he makes the calls. He sets the tempo. He sets the direction. He sets where I live, where I work, what I do. And he is sovereignly ruling from his throne all the affairs of man that work towards his glory and his renown. So some of us may be reminded, just like here, is that, hey, Jesus is king. Regardless of what's going on around the world, Jesus is king. Regardless of what's going on in your life, listen to me, Jesus is king. And if you've bowed your knee to that king, then he rules and reigns for his, for his glory, but for your, your good. Like Romans 8, 28, you know, all things work for the good, like that sounds, no, that, there's the king of the universe that's making that happen. It isn't like it may work out. No, he is sovereignly decreeing and ruling that it's all working towards a purpose, and it's your good and his glory. It's not just maybe. He's not like, 
the genie in Aladdin that goes, you know what, I think I can make this work. No, he is, he is on his throne. The, the, the father's making his enemies his footstool. And listen to me, he is sovereignly working in that direction. Be encouraged, Christian. We need to be reminded that he is king. For now and for always. So what's the application of this text? There's a lot. Somehow a guitar pick just fell out of my Bible, and I don't even play the guitar, but it's a... Uh, it says Judah and the lion, whoever this is, I have it. <clears throat> What's the application? There's a bunch, but I'm just going to kind of, I think upon reading this text, you and I should be drawn to spend time in the Word of God that we can able, we'll be able to clearly speak it and defend it and, and explain this to me. And, and this has radically changed my life. Somebody wants to ask Spurgeon, how do you defend the Bible? And he said, defend it. You don't need to be defended. It's a lion. Just let it out of his cage. And so when I say that, spending time without articulating, like the Bible doesn't need you to defend it. It doesn't need me to defend it. It speaks for itself. It just needs to have somebody who goes, all right, this is what it says. I, I may not have the answer to that, but I'll come back to you in a little bit. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to read over here. And chances are the scripture is going to speak for itself. It's going to teach itself. So the reformers meant by the sufficiency of Scripture, that Scripture teaches Scripture. You don't have to have a bunch of commentaries to understand the Word of God. You just have to have the, have the Word of God because it's going to teach itself. I think it's evident in this passage that while we're preaching the gospel and trying to reach those who don't know Jesus, that we trust God to do the work of salvation. And I hope you see that as we're going through this text is that Paul and Silas wanted to be on a different part of the planet. But God had predestined and planned for them to end up in Philippi and now Thessalonica. And we may not have anybody's names of these people who came to believe, but listen to me. The Jew who believed in the synagogue, the woman who believed in the synagogue, and the Greek who believed in the synagogue is just as important as Lydia in chapter 16 to the kingdom and the jail keeper and his family. Just because the name's not there doesn't mean it's any less of a gospel presentation of salvation that needs to be celebrated. So we trust God for the work of salvation. And thirdly, we'll see this, expect conflict to arise. Oftentimes, people, you know, I've thought, if, if there is not conflict, am I walking in the will of God? That's a, not that, like, so we don't go seek it. But if my life is just peachy, perfect, peaceful, and there's no, like, issues with gospel conversations and things like that, then maybe I need to recheck and realign what my true north is. Well, I'm going to pray for us, but before I do, this morning we are taking the Lord's Supper together. And uh, I'm not going to preach the whole sermon again, but here we go. Is uh, to, be, to take the Lord's Supper with us at Crosspoint. You don't have to be a member of Crosspoint. Uh, you just have to be a follower of Jesus. And so I would ask you, if you have in your own life submitted to the kingship of Jesus, the lordship of Jesus, and said, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. I have placed my faith in him then you're welcome to come take the Lord's Supper with us. 
Um, if you haven't, then we just ask you to remain kind of where you'd be standing or sitting and no judgment, nobody will even look at you. Um, and so, um, but I think it's a good way for us to respond to the text this morning is to take the Lord's Supper saying, as we take it, we say, Jesus is the Christ. He's the promised one. And he fulfilled it on my behalf. I think that's a good response to the text this morning for us as a church is when we take when we're about to take the of the, the cup and the juice in our mind, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ, and he's the king. If you haven't trusted in Jesus, I wouldn't invite you to. That today the good news about the gospel is first of all, you know. God's probably already revealed in your heart or in your mind, whatever you want to call it. If, you, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, if you've trusted in Jesus, and I would say if he's revealed to you that you need to trust in Jesus, then the only reasonable response for you this morning is to trust in Jesus. Don't put it off. Don't go to later because not to be that guy, but we don't not promise that. Don't put off today or to tomorrow what should be done right now. If you're hearing the Lord call you, don't, don't be disobedient. Like, Choose to follow Jesus today. I would implore you to do that. After we take the, take the Lord's Supper, I'll be standing in the back. Uh, and we can talk and pray. But I ask you, you can do it right where you're seated. And say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. Messiah, the one to come, and I believe and trust in him. Anyway, I'm going to pray. I don't know who's doing the Lord's Supper today. I think is Philip and Leslie and Clay and Cherry and oh, the Ravens. Okay, I say Luke, line that up. And Braxton and Jessica. Y'all can go ahead and come. Go come down. I'm, everybody stand. Uh, so the way that we do it, uh, if you haven't been a part of our uh, Lord's Supper services, uh, I'm going to pray in a moment. The band's going to sing over us. And then as they're singing over us and you're singing, we're singing, you just step to the nearest aisle, come down and grab one of these. Philip, can I have one of those? Uh, if you haven't seen these, we call these our COVID cups. And uh, they have the, the, the wafer up top and the juice. And so it's like a, it's like a double, double whammy. If you, if you struggle with a coffee creamer, you really got it going on here. Uh, and so you got two of them. You got a pool. Uh, but anyway... Uh, just come down at your own time and you come down and take one of these and go back to your seat. Uh, and then when I think everybody is, uh, is ready, I'll come back up and we'll all partake together. Cool? All right, I would say this. If you need to trust in Jesus, I'm going to be standing right here by my wife during this time because come to me and say, hey, I need to trust in Jesus. Cool? All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your love for us. God, I thank you that, that Jesus is the Christ and that we can look to your word and we can see that from, from, from before Genesis, but from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22, it's been a painting the picture of him being the Christ. God, thank you that you have revealed that to us, that we don't come to that understanding by our own intellect, but your Holy Spirit illuminating our eyes to see it. And I pray that happens for somebody today, that they all trust in you, God. I thank you for the opportunity to take of, of the elements, to do this in remembrance of Jesus, who is the Christ. 
God, be with us during this time. May we respond in a way that's honoring and glorifying to you. In Christ's name, amen. You begin to move as you're ready.